Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The connection between San Diego and a violent white supremacist group. You know, they've been spreading anti-Semitic myth and, and conspiracy theories. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. People in North County may have better access to public transit. A look at what's in the works. If we want transit to be successful, we need to create uh, positive transit-oriented places where people want to go, uh, and that's part of what the strategy is here. A preview of what's showing at this year's Jewish Film Festival, and we'll tell you about the new play, Under a Baseball Sky, on stage at the Old Globe. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Anti-Semitism and hate crimes are on the rise in the United States, and some far-right groups are becoming more extreme. iNews Source investigative reporter Jill Castellano tells us about how one of those extremist groups is impacting San Diego. San Diego has been forced to face anti-Semitism head-on. In 2019, a man shot four people at a synagogue in Poway, a San Diego suburb, which spread fear across the Jewish community. Since then, the number of anti-Semitic incidents in the area has continued to climb. That includes acts of vandalism, harassment, and assault. A far-right extremist group connected to San Diego is fueling incidents like these. It's called the Goyim Defense League. Over the past years, the Goyim Defense League has been active in San Diego. That's Fabian Perlov, the San Diego Regional Director of the Anti-Defamation League. She says the Goyam Defense League is a small network of white supremacists with dozens of supporters and thousands of online followers. You know, they've been spreading anti-Semitic myths and, and conspiracy theories. They say that Jews are responsible for 9-11 and the COVID pandemic. They also hold on racist and homophobic views. The group has monthly propaganda campaigns where it distributes flyers and displays signs with hateful messages. There were more than 100 of these events across the country last year. San Diego has been home to one of the group's most prominent figures, a Canadian immigrant named Robert Wilson. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Wilson provokes members of the public with hateful language and posts footage of the incidents on social media. Last year, Wilson and another member of the Goyam Defense League paraded around San Diego in a van covered with anti-Semitic messages, using a megaphone to shout at people on the street. 
They did it again in Beverly Hills a few months later. The Anti-Defamation League says even though the hateful activities might be protected as free speech, it's important to report them to the authorities because they can escalate. We know that words matter and the hateful rhetoric breeds more hateful rhetoric, especially online, and and, and it can incite real-life violence. In late 2021, Wilson allegedly attacked his next-door neighbor while yelling homophobic slurs. He was charged with a hate crime and is facing up to three years in prison. Shortly after the incident, Wilson spoke to CBS 8 reporter David Gottfredson outside the courthouse. Are you in a feud with your neighbor? Uh, no. You didn't uh, yell homophobic slurs at your neighbor? There's no such thing as homophobia. But Wilson didn't stick around to face the charges. Last summer, he fled the country to Poland, where he continues to spread hate. Wilson went to the Auschwitz Memorial and held up an anti-Semitic sign with John Minadio, the Goyam Defense League's founder who's from the Bay Area. Minadio was arrested. In November, Wilson recorded a video of himself confronting U.S. military officers in Poland and using a racial slur. Show us what a tough guy you are. You got an AR-15? The San Diego County District Attorney's Office wouldn't say if it will extradite Wilson. The Anti-Defamation League says he's not a threat to San Diegans anymore. Uh, honestly, we don't miss him in San Diego. San Diego County is home to more than 100,000 Jewish people and 400 Holocaust survivors. The county's Board of Supervisors recently declared January 24th Holocaust Remembrance Day and agreed to build a commemorative exhibit in the county. Board member Nathan Fletcher said the exhibit is deeply needed. When we see hate speech and white supremacy, nationalism and anti-Semitism, like we are seeing growing across our communities and society, when we see these things, we're reminded of the work that remains to hold true to our promise in the aftermath of the Holocaust, the promise of never again. That story from my news source investigative reporter Jill Castellano, who joins me now to open her reporter's notebook. Jill, welcome. Thanks so much. Can you put this story about Robert Wilson into the context of the rise in anti-Semitism and hate crimes here in the last few years? Yes, we have seen a rise in anti-Semitic attitudes and incidents over the past few years across the country. We know that to be the case. And when I talk to community groups here in San Diego, they say they can feel that locally. I talked to the Jewish Federation of San Diego and they say what the real impact of this is on a day-to-day level is Jewish community groups, synagogues, places of worship need to be very focused on security and safety. That's their number one priority right now instead of being welcoming. And that's just a lot for a community to carry. It is. Um, How did you first learn about Robert Wilson? Why did you want to tell the story about his influence locally with this white supremacist group? This story came about through brainstorming with KQED Radio up in the Bay Area. We realized that there's a lot of connections between what we were seeing down here in San Diego and what they were seeing up in the Bay Area about this rise in extremist uh, groups and activity. And we even saw some connections. So it turns out that John Minadio, who's the founder of the Goyam Defense League, is from the Bay Area and is closely tied to Robert Wilson down here in San Diego. So we wanted to be able to tell these stories about this rise in anti-Semitism and white supremacy, not only on a local level, but in a broader sense on a statewide level. So what exactly is the Goyam Defense League? 
it's a loosely connected network of individuals who share an ideology of white supremacism and anti-Semitism and other uh, hateful beliefs. Some of them have their own followings on social media. Some of them are part of other hate groups, but generally they are anti-Semitic. They post to their online platforms and streaming services. They even uh, sell merchandise on their website and they use that to uh, that money to print flyers and uh, continue to promote these anti-Semitic messages. So what's behind the name of this organization? Well, the word goy is sometimes used by Jewish people for a non-Jewish person. And so they've taken that word and put that into this group, which they're calling the Goyim Defense League, which also takes part of its name from the Anti-Defamation League, which is a group that is uh, known to try to defend against some of this anti-Semitic rhetoric and uh, hateful messaging and activities. In your story, you describe an incident between Wilson and his neighbor. Can you talk more about that neighbor's experience? Yes. So according to court records, Wilson and his neighbors had gotten into several disputes in the past, and the neighbors allegedly had tried to get two, at least two restraining orders in the past that had been denied. Uh, If you look at the incident that happened in November 2021, according to the court records, Wilson blocked his neighbor's driveway, uh, went up to him and started to uh, say things that were homophobic and actually went up to the neighbor's car window and struck the neighbor in the face through the car window. And according to these court records, Wilson is actually holding a small child in one arm of two to three years olds at the time that this happened. And there was a, a woman on the scene as well who was trying to stop Wilson, but was unsuccessful. And you, you sort of shed light on, on it, but why was the neighbor targeted by Wilson? The neighbor was a gay, a married man, and the way that the prosecutors are arguing it is that he was targeted because he was a gay man. Wilson, according to a video that was captured at the time of the incident, was using homophobic slurs. And this Robert Wilson fled to Poland to avoid prosecution. What can you tell us about that? Well, the court records show that Wilson tried to convince his girlfriend to flee the country with him and threatened her and uh, threatened her if she didn't agree to come. She later reported that to the police. And by that point, uh, it seems that he had already left for Poland. The law enforcement agents tried to go and uh, subpoena flight records, and they were able to find that he had taken a flight from San Diego to Amsterdam, and there was no return flight listed. So by the time a court hearing was supposed to be scheduled in August last year, Robert Wilson was nowhere to be found and a warrant was issued for his arrest. So were he to return to America at this point, he would be arrested. Hmm. And you had your own strange experience with Wilson. What happened there? Yes, that's right. Uh, He impersonated the victim in this alleged incident, the neighbor, uh, on a phone call with me. He uh, illegally recorded that phone call without permission, and he actually posted it to his online channels. So it was one of the more surreal reporting experiences that I've had. Uh, How did he know who you were? That sounds very creepy. 
Well, when I was starting to report this story, I was reaching out to people for comment. Uh, Wilson, like anybody else, uh, has the ability to offer comments on uh, you know, the charges that he's facing. And when we did ask specific questions about the charges that he's facing and his activity in the Goyam Defense League, he didn't answer those questions. Uh, the Anti-Defamation League told you that it's important to report incidents like when Robert Wilson drove around San Diego in a van with anti-Semitic images and language because it can escalate. Uh, while Wilson is no longer in San Diego, there are still people associated with the white supremacist group Goyam Defense League. So how concerned are local authorities about future acts of violence being committed by members of that group? You know, I asked the ADL, which, you know, the Anti-Defamation League closely monitors the Goyam Defense League's channels, if they think there are other people connected to this group who are still active in San Diego now that Wilson is gone, and they were not sure. Um, But certainly the ADL and law enforcement authorities are monitoring these channels very closely, and they are concerned about the possibility of future hateful acts and messages being spread locally. What's the status of this group now that Wilson is in Poland? The group is still very active. Wilson is continuing to be involved from abroad because of the way that these social media channels work and amplify messages. You can continue to spread these anti-Semitic messages from anywhere in the world. And what, if any, influence on members of the group does Robert Wilson have from Poland? Well, he is very active still, so he is able to encourage uh, the spreading of these anti-Semitic messages. We know that he has done things like accosted U.S. military members and post videos of that from Poland as well. So he's definitely still involved. I've been speaking with Jill Castellano of iNewsource. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. And Jill, thank you so much. Thanks for having me iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. The need for more housing and sustainable transportation has North County's Transit Agency exploring ways to maximize the use of their land. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne breaks down the changes on the horizon for multiple stations. Where there is space, there is opportunity. North County Transit District sees opportunity in the underutilized land around their transit stations. Uh, The goal is to transform our stations into vibrant multi-mobility hubs that have mixed uses, housing, commercial, retail, uh, as well as our transit operations. Chris Orlando is the Chief Planning and Communications Officer with NCTD. He says mixed-use projects are being proposed around four North County stations. Oceanside, Carlsbad Village, Carlsbad Poinsettia, and Escondido. To not only drive ridership, but also create revenue for the district and add housing to the region. The furthest along in the pipeline is the redevelopment of Oceanside's 10-acre transit center. The transit hub connects travelers to Amtrak, Orange County's Metrolink trains, and NCTD's Coaster, Sprinter, and Breeze buses. The station's redevelopment includes over 500 mixed-income apartments along with a boutique hotel and commercial space. The transit center will also get modernized. NCTD's headquarters will also be relocated to Oceanside's transit center. 
Once they've moved, their old building will be redeveloped into residential apartments that will include market rate and affordable units. The redevelopment of the Oceanside Transit Center is a keystone for the city um, and their long-term vision of the development of this city. Redevelopment of this site is an extension of downtown. Lillian Doherty is NCTD's Director of Planning and Development. She says developers are currently negotiating with the city of Oceanside and construction is anticipated to start in 2025. We really do anticipate a cultural shift of our writers and our communities that will allow them to live, work and play at our transit stations um, through these uh, vibrant communities that we're building. Oceanside City Council member Eric Joyce says while the project has many benefits to travelers, he will be pushing for a space that benefits the Oceanside community. We're always looking for more community spaces as we have the Junior Seau that's not too far away, Beach Community Center. Uh, but there's never enough space for programming. There's never enough space for our, our classes. So uh, we are working with the developer to make sure that there's something that is a public benefit directly is included in the final project. Joyce also hopes the affordable housing element will help keep more people from getting pushed out of the city. I think this project in particular is really important and it's a really good opportunity for us to show that new development is actually working for the people that live in Oceanside. Carlsbad's transit stations are also up for redevelopment. Doherty with NCTD says the Carlsbad Village Station and the Poinsettia Station will each have their own developer, chosen just last month. Uh, we anticipate that there will be mixed-use development that will provide for affordable housing and market-raised housing as well as ground floor retail. Between the two projects, Carlsbad will get just over 400 more apartments and 81 of them will be affordable housing. You know, between NCTD and MTS, uh, there's a, a, a real big effort at creating uh, more housing for folks. Corina Contreras represents Vista on the NCTD board. She says they're making progress when it comes to housing, but when it comes to transit, there is still more to be done to connect North County with the rest of San Diego. If we could build that out, have on the 78 uh, transit priority, lanes or managed lanes that allow our buses to go from Vista, you know, and quickly um, down to San Diego, that provides us more opportunity, whether that's economic opportunity or the opportunity to participate in different recreational things like going to Petco, you know, and, and whatnot. Escondido Transit Center is the newest project NCTD has opened up for proposals with 13 acres available for housing and retail. Developers have until March to submit their plans. That story was from KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne, who joins me now to open her reporter's notebook. Tanya, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Jade. So what's behind this push to rethink how the North County Transit Authority uses their land? Well, there's several factors here. You know, the need for housing is definitely a top one, right? but also more ways to create revenue, not just for the agency, but the city, businesses, all around, and also increasing public transportation ridership. You know, recently we've seen a big push on going electric, biking places, and promoting public transportation. So NCTD's goal is that these projects will create that in a place that is otherwise going unused at the moment. With that in mind, where are the sites for this proposed development? For North County Transit District, there are four sites that have currently been identified, and they're all in different stages. The furthest along in the process is Oceanside, and 
This is really a vital project because this station connects North County to downtown San Diego. It also goes northbound to Orange County and also connects with the Sprinter that goes east into Vista, San Marcos, Escondido. So this is a big one. The next sites are Carlsbad Village and Carlsbad Poinsettia stations that are slightly smaller projects. And the developers for this project were recently selected. And the newest site is Escondido. So that project is relatively newer and has just started the process and applications for developers are now open. You know, affordable housing uh, seems to be a significant part of these proposals. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, definitely. Housing, housing, housing. Together, these projects are expected to create over 900 market rate housing units and almost 200 affordable ones. And that's huge for North County. And being that all of these homes are going to be near transit, it could mean a shift in the way people get around. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's only so many affordable units and not everyone will qualify or get one. So it will help a few hundred families, but not everyone. So now the market rate is what's scary, right? Given the high prices we've been seeing lately. And for the Carlsbad and Oceanside projects, those stations are near the coast. So it'll be interesting to see what these units are priced out to be. And this redevelopment will also mean new headquarters for the Transit Authority. Are there plans to reuse their existing properties once they've moved to a new site? Yeah, so NCTD's headquarters aren't very far from the Oceanside Transit Station. And once that project is complete, their headquarters will be relocating to that transit hub. Then their old headquarters will be redeveloped into more housing. It will be 176 market rate units and 30 affordable units, which in my opinion was a good move on behalf of the developer and you know helping the project be more accepted and move along into fruition. Are transit officials hoping uh, that these new development plans could also increase ridership as well? Oh, yes. And, you know, not only ridership on behalf of the residents that end up living in these new complexes, but tourists, too. You know, the Oceanside and Carlsbad stations are also getting boutique hotels. So these places have the potential to become pit stops as travelers maybe travel up the coast by train and other means of transportation. So is there a sense that transit between North County and the rest of the region is in need of an overhaul? Yeah, so, you know, while this is a nice effort when it comes to filling the housing gaps and how to best use the land that is going unused right now, North County still has a way to go to improve public transportation. You know, most residents that live here don't rely on public transportation and commute for work. And that can be the time slots that are available, the modes available, the distance. I spoke to Vista City Council member Corina Contreras, who outlined how cities like San Marcos and Vista don't have a direct connection to downtown San Diego right now. So, you know, multiple modes of transportation are required to this, and there's definitely some improvements needed here. Can you talk a bit more about the big picture behind these plans? It seems like a major effort to create more livable communities through smart transit. Yeah, definitely. I think with the big push into sustainability and greener modes of transportation, MTS, as well as NCTD, these public agencies are looking for ways to enhance their stations. And you need to think about the housing that's going in here and all the retail as well. So new things for people to do. They're really trying to do a major overhaul really on their stations right now that 
some, you know, some may not look the best. They attract a lot of homeless people. They're run down. So I think it's time, especially for North County, but they have the potential to become places that people want to go to, that they want to live. And if they're not living there, you know, maybe go out to get a bite to eat, go get a coffee and take public transportation to these places. So it's it, it'll be a good thing for North County, in my opinion. Right. So what's the timeline for all this development? It's still a very long ways out before we see a shovel actually hit the ground. Each municipality has to negotiate the final plan with the developers and get everything approved. If it ever does, maybe we'll see. Oceanside is currently in the negotiation process and construction for that site is anticipated to start in 2025, as well as Carlsbad Village. Carlsbad Poinsettia is anticipated for a construction start in 2027, and for Escondido, no date has been set. So it's just a matter of waiting and seeing if these projects go on through. Well, it's good to see it all in thought. I've been speaking with KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jade. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. The San Diego International Jewish Film Festival kicks off its 33rd year tomorrow. And on Thursday, it hosts the world premiere of Deadly Deception at Sobibor. The documentary focuses on an archaeologist who unearths new details about a Nazi death camp in Poland. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the filmmaker Gary Hockman. Gary, you have a film coming up at the San Diego International Jewish Film Festival. And I just want to begin by talking about the title of your film, and it's called Deadly Deception at Sobibor. So what is this referring to? I'll assume that most people don't know what Sobibor is. It was a death camp, not a concentration camp. It was in a remote forested area of um, eastern Poland. Just the site of the death camp being so far from the prying eyes of the public, makes it one form of deception. Another form of deception is when people arrived and the doors of the, of the trains opened, they would have seen little white cottages. There were barracks, but they, they looked more like cottages. They would have seen a, a big Nazi flag and they would have been told a story. And the story that they would have been told is that they're at, they've arrived at a, at a camp where they're going to be um, living and they're going to be settled. And uh, there was a speech given to them. And then after the speech, they were told they were going to take a shower for delousing purposes or whatever. All of these things were deceptions to keep people calm. The last deception is they get to where there's supposed to be a shower and it turns out to be a gas chambers. They're gassed using just a, uh, a diesel engine, trainload by trainload. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. People are marched, killed, and then burned. Their bodies are burned in an open field. The last deception is the deception by the Nazis themselves, which is hiding everything that they did. And the film would not have been made if it were not for an archaeologist named Joram Jaime. And I want to play a quick clip from your film to introduce him. I know that some of the people know uh, what is this camp, but I will say it again because I see a new people here. 
that we are excavating in uh, extermination camp. What we are doing now, we are trying to find the location of the gas chamber. And we try to find the pieces of concrete maybe or, or brick that was part of the gas chamber. And what role did he play in terms of fueling the information in this documentary? Nothing in this investigation would have happened if it wasn't for a Moroccan-Israeli archaeologist named Yoram Chaimi. And Yoram visited the site in the early 2000s. And he thought he would find a museum and he would find records of his family. And instead, what he found was a forest, basically no signs. And he got a hold of a colleague uh, by the name of Wojciech Mazurek, a Polish archaeologist. And together, they petitioned the government for permission to excavate the site. Yoram reasoned that a place where a great crime took place is essentially a crime scene. And anything that's left would be underneath the ground. You know, we're at a point where we feel like, can there be new information uncovered? And the answer is yes. And this film does show that there are still new things to be found about a history we some people may think they know well. Most of the historians that I've talked to about Sobibor tend to react to the work that we're doing by saying, well, we essentially know what happened at Sobibor. There was a revolt. There were survivors. And I would counter by saying, that's true to a, to a degree. But what's not true is that there were no survivors in the parts of the camp where the killings actually took place. Sobibor is a place where there are no tattoos, there are no lists of prisoners like there would be at a place like Auschwitz or Majdanek. There were no uh, pictures of the slave laborers or the victims like there were at concentration camps. So the new information is really due to archaeology because the record that's left behind by the people who were in the, the killing parts of the camp, that's the new information, that's new testimony. Well, and the other thing that's new that's uncovered are some of these artifacts. And I just want to play a clip from the film that really kind of hits the message home about what this, what these kind of revelations can mean. About 35,000 Jews from the Netherlands died here in Sobibor. Just what you see uh, when you're digging here is, is quite a lot of Dutch artifacts. So that's interesting for me being Dutch. The whole story, which is a story about big numbers, it's more or less impossible to understand. But when you see those items, the whole story becomes quite personal. Then it's very easy to take in the whole story and to understand the whole story because you come on that personal level. It's not an abstraction. It's not a story of big figures anymore. It's a story of one person. So what your film really does well is these tiny artifacts really give us insights into the individual people who were at these camps. So talk a little bit about some of the stuff that was uncovered. Well, many things that were uncovered were, were fairly routine. There were keys, there were coins, hairpins. But the most disturbing of all of the items that were found were a series of metal name tags. And most of the name tags had a date, a place, and a person's name. And most of those name tags were of children from age 6 to 13, and there were a couple of adults. And these are the 
only people by name that we have that we can prove died at this place. So one of the things your film focuses on that is not often told is about a Jewish revolt that happened at the camp. So explain what happened. See, for me, the revolt isn't the main part of the story. The revolt is the reason that the Nazis hid their crimes. From the Nazi perspective, this revolt was a disaster. First of all, the people that they were trying to get rid of were supposed to be inferior, people who could be handled very easily by a few guards. And now there was a revolt. And once all of these people fled, the Nazis had a big problem. And the big problem was trying to erase their crime scene. And so they created the ultimate deception. They, they actually began Holocaust denial at places like Sobibor and other places where things went wrong. Talk a little bit about how important it is to make sure these kind of histories are taught in schools and that people broadly know about this information. California is one of 23 states that have passed legislation to mandate the teaching of the Holocaust in public schools. And I think education is Im- about the Holocaust isn't just important because it's a, it's a horrific historic event. I think it's important because I think people forget that a place like Sobibor is the outcome of violent bigotry. And for violent bigotry to exist, you have to have public hatred. And boy, do we have a lot of that in our current lives. As a matter of fact, a lot of what's being discussed publicly in our country and abroad sounds very, very similar to what was going on in 1930s and 40s Germany. The the, the Holocaust is a historic event, but it's also a little bit of our current history as well. If you don't check the blind hatred, the divisive rhetoric that's tossed about on a weekly basis, regardless of whether it has to do with Jews or any other minority group that exists. This is the basis for how the Holocaust happened in the first place. Education is one way to fight that. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Gary Hockman. Deadly Deception at Sobibor screens Thursday at the San Diego International Jewish Film Festival. The festival runs through February 26th in person at the Garfield Theater in La Jolla and then virtually from February 27th to March 3rd. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Under a Baseball Sky is a world premiere play commissioned by the Old Globe with its roots in the Globe's Powers New Voices playwriting program. The play is about baseball and is inspired by the Logan Heights community in San Diego. And it's from the team who brought us the 2018 play American Mariachi. Playwright Jose Cruz Gonzalez and director James Vasquez spoke with KPBS arts producer Julia Dixon Evans. Here's their conversation. So, starting with Jose, why did you choose sports and specifically baseball for a play? I chose baseball and community to tell this story. You know, for me, baseball is such an Americana thing in terms of, you know, its roots and you know, those roots also connect with the immigrant community here in the United States. And I thought, there's a story there. And it's now, you know, it, it, I had to find it. And in my research, when I began to look into it, I realized that there wasn't a whole lot of information about our Latinx community and baseball. Uh, when you listen to Ken Burns or watch his documentary on baseball, we really don't exist. And I thought, I, I want to talk about that. And as I dug into it, I began to realize there were much more than just baseball. And so that journey would, would uh, eventually send me down to San Diego, where I would um, encounter this community in Logan Heights that really was represented a lot of communities across this country and how baseball played an important part in those communities. And James, what is your connection to baseball? Oh, gosh, I grew up playing baseball. You know, my dad, my dad is many, many wonderful things, a teacher, a poet, and a baseball coach. And he was one of my very first baseball coaches, starting with T-ball. And, you know, I played up until I was about 12. And then I broke my father's heart when I discovered tap shoes and transitioned into theater. But we watched baseball all the time growing up. And, you know, to the point that I don't know that I ever had a favorite team. We just watched the game and loved it. So it's been a part of my life uh, always. So the setting is based on the Mexican-American community in San Diego's Logan Heights. James, can you talk a little bit about Logan Heights and, and what it is about that place that's connected in this work? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I grew up here in San Diego. And again, connecting with my father, my father was a part of an organization when I was a child called Community Arts Center. And it brought artists from all over the country, but primarily San Diego. Um, and we spent a lot of time down in uh, the Logan Heights area, in the downtown area, just celebrating that community and the arts in that community. So I I, I really grew up watching a, a community build itself and support um, each other uh, in that that growth of itself. And, you know, Logan Heights and Barrio Logan, I mean, talk about roots in San Diego. They really sort of those communities celebrate what San Diego is about. Um, and we got to take our cast to Logan Heights for a, a field trip to a very short field trip. But just to get a little sense of what that community was like and I mean, I think what we all came back with was uh, celebration, 
you know, the, walking through Chicano Park and seeing those murals, it was about honoring and celebration. We went um, and got pan dulce and and talked to the the men who ran the shop, and it was about celebration and each other. So I think that that's really what we're we're wanting to celebrate with this story. And Jose, San Diegans will will recognize this community, but as you wrote it. Were you imagining how the play would be received in other cities? Yes. You know, I've been blessed to travel across this country to many communities and to see how these immigrant communities, you know, uh, were planted, you know, in terms of community arriving there to, to find work and, of course, you know, raising their families and their children becoming part of the American fabric. Uh, and... I found that common thread of baseball as well as union organizing. It was one of the interesting things is that the employers of these canneries and packing sheds, you know, thought, let's let's teach our immigrant workers about working together and teamwork and things like that. And out of that, you know, evolved, you know, these communities playing baseball, the children growing up, learning that game. And, you know, the weekends where Sunday would be the day of church, family, and baseball. And, uh, and, and that was happening, you know, all over the country. And, you know, as these workers would play one another, the different teams, they'd start to go, well, what, what do you make over here at, at your job? And I'm making this and that. And out of that, this really interesting thing began to happen as union organizing started happening. So, so there was something really um, to me, appealing about looking at it, looking through the lens of baseball, but through the lens of, uh, of a, an immigrant community. And as James was saying, celebrating that history and, and that tenacity of, you know, carving out a world, a, a life for their families, uh, wherever th- these stories took. The inspiration, of course, was... Uh, Logan Heights, because uh, it really was uh, the place that I came to when researching the play. And uh, a friend of ours, Maria Garcia, who, you know, took the time to give us a tour uh, and history lesson about Logan, the community, its workers, its families, and baseball. And out of that, the pieces of the story began to sort of form and taking that information, that knowledge, and then applying that to the, the other stories and the other communities across the country, this became a composite of, um, you know, just the story itself. And so it, it, it's just been such a great honor to be able to tell this story here in San Diego at the Globe with, you know, Logan Heights just being just down the hill from, from the theater. It's been really exciting. You know, I, th- I think there's something Jose was talking about honoring the, the community and the history. And I think throughout the country, we are seeing um, historic uh, parts of our our cities. Um, regentrification is coming in and taking over and we're losing our history. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about this show is it, it again honors San Diego and who we are and where we come from and what makes this city great. And it's the people and the communities and that history. 
Thank you. Uh, this play, it follows these two main characters. There's a younger one described as a troublemaker and his elderly neighbor. Jose, can you tell us about these two and why you chose this intergenerational friendship at the heart of the story? Yeah. You know, we have a 16-year-old boy who's gotten in trouble at school, and it's just, you know, devastated him and for so many reasons for what happened at school. And of course, you have this uh, elderly neighbor, one really the sort of the foundation of that community, one of the f- earliest uh, arrivals, you know, fleeing a, a war in Mexico to coming to this community and being really its mother hen, if you will, of, of helping to keep a community vibrant and alive and, you know, thriving. But there's a cost to her, her sort of adopting this community and helping it, you know, raise it. And so these two wounded souls, you know, are sort of forced together and they do not get along at all, which causes all sorts of sparks in our story. But one of the common threads that these two find is baseball, their love of baseball. And it's through that lens that they find friendship. And in that friendship, they also find healing. And so to me, that's been the beauty of, um, of this story. And of course, the way James has cast this with some remarkable, talented artists in this cast, and particularly these two folks, the, the young um, boy and, and the elderly woman, they're just just magical to watch them on stage and the chemistry and the electricity that emits from them. You just, you, you're, you're with them at every step of the way in this performance. And, uh, and what a gift that they, that we have them all uh, in this. And again, with, with James's magical touch as a, as a director, uh, he, you know, it it just, it just continues to, illuminate each night as we've been uh, in our previews uh watching an audience just get electrified by the by the performances and and the story i have one more question how do you stage a play about a game that you really can't play indoors james oh gosh with lots of theater magic and imagination (laughs) um you know this uh um I love working in the round. I think it's one of the most magical uh, creative spaces to tell a story in. And this play, Jose has written a a, a wildly beautiful and in some ways cinematic story. Um, And I I have loved that challenge of finding a way in the round to, to, to tell this story and make it flow and make it dissolve into each other. And, um, uh, really move forward. And within the baseball game, I mean, you know, come see it, come see it because we transform this stage throughout the course of the play into a baseball field and the game happens. You know, we, uh, we're throwing pitches, we're hitting balls. Um, we're striking people out, um, and we're having a blast doing it. And theater in the round means there's no back wall, so the audience sits all around, much like a baseball field. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
That was KPBS Arts producer Julia Dixon-Evans speaking with Under a Baseball Sky playwright Jose Cruz Gonzalez and director James Vasquez. The play is currently in low-cost previews at the Old Globe and officially opens on Thursday, February 16th. It's on stage through March 12th. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota. Let's go places.